RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. On a few occasions so far on Reality Check Radio, we have talked central bank digital currencies. And in our launch a few months ago, that was one of the things that we talked about that we wanted to find out more about and uh, questions needed to be asked and answers needed to be given. I want to welcome to the program John Butler, who is Editorial and Investment Director at South Bank Investment Research. And I think, uh, John, you're in the UK. Are you? Whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm in a nice uh, suburb of northwest of London, sort of a leafy residential area, but quite close to the centre of town, really. Well, thank you for, for joining us. As I said, we've talked central bank digital currencies. We're sort of trying to get our arms around what this means. Um, from the get-go, should we be worried? Well, you should always be worried when governments seek to acquire new powers. I mean, history is fairly instructive in that regard. Now, a central bank digital currency is really just another form of monetary technology. And technology, we like to think, is the source of, of the vast bulk of human progress and civilization. But as we also know, any technology can be used for good or for ill. And I think that applies here. Central bank digital currencies could be abused in ways that would enable governments to to misbehave and to do things that perhaps in a free, open, uh, democratic society, uh, things that would make us uncomfortable. Is this a fundamental reinvention of what we've known for so long now that money actually is? Was there something less than that? Well, I mean, money is, is fundamental to civilization. And if you don't have a medium of exchange that people can trust, uh, you're, you're not going to be able to facilitate commerce in a way that allow people to apply their trade and go about their business as efficiently as possible. And, and all of the great strides of civilization have required some sort of monetary system. Now, the government will claim that this is a great step forward and that a digital, purely digital currency is even more efficient than what we already have. Well, on paper, I think that's true. But in practice, that's another matter. And, and, and the idea that a purely digital currency is something completely ephemeral in principle. If a government wants to make it disappear, they can just make it disappear. Whereas something tangible, uh, that is you know, the paper money or, or coin coinage that we've been using, um, is in a way, it's a natural check on the government's ability to hyper manipulate uh, money and the money supply and access to that money, who gets it, under what conditions, and so on. It certainly challenges our basic notions of privacy, though, doesn't it? Well, the, by definition, it does, because if you do have a bearer asset, that is something that simply by virtue of having it in your wallet, having it on your person, um, and can be exchanged with someone else who you know, has something they, they'd like to sell you. That can, in theory, be a purely private transaction. Now, obviously, there might be CCTV around, or there might be some, some observer who represents the government, keeping an eye on the marketplace, whatever it is. But it becomes more difficult. Whereas a purely digital currency, it is self-surveilling, in a sense. Anyone who wants to go into the algorithm and see who shared that digital currency with whom, at what time, at what place, for what in exchange, we'll be able to do so. And that does concern a lot of people. Yeah, given what we've seen over the last short period of time and what happened in Canada with the truckers, and there, there are examples out there, there's a trust issue, isn't there? Well, there, there is, there is. And again, some, some, 
This is a classic debate. This goes back to the ancient Greeks, perhaps even older. The, the, the right to know or the need to know about what other people's affairs are. Some people say that if a government does not have the power to spy on its citizens, that government is, is unable to protect itself. And if that government's unable to protect itself, then it will be unstable. It might be brought down by seditious conspiracy left, right, and center. Others say, no, no, hold on, hold on. A, a robust society that uh, is reasonably coherent where people you know, find a way to get along. They, they chose to coalesce into a, a country, into a nation state in the first place, that they really should be allowed to go about their business. And the whole purpose of government is simply to protect people's rights in that regard, You're right? Life, liberty, property, You know, back to John Locke and these guys. Um, th this debate is as old as, as philosophy itself. The problem is, is that here you get into this kind of almost Orwellian or Huxleyan concept where the power over over surveillance, day-to-day -day commerce, even the tiniest transactions is immediately and readily available to anyone in power. And for those of us who are skeptical that power tends to corrupt, power tends to be abused, that is frightening. And there's no opting out, is there? Really, from a system no, like this. That, exactly. That's the thing. So, for example, let's say you're concerned about the health of your bank or the health of the banking system generally, and you want to protect your savings. So you you, know, you, you want to withdraw it. Currently, you can still do that. It's actually becoming quite difficult to withdraw large amounts of physical cash here in the United Kingdom. I understand that's also true in most of the world at this point. But that, in a way, you can opt out of the system, at least temporarily. Just withdraw your banknotes and wait it out and see if the banks you know, are, whatever, being sensibly managed and, and, and improve their behavior, whatever it is. Don't take too much credit risk. Once you go over to digital, there's no escape. At that point, there's no withdrawing from the system. The only way you can save is to save in that system. And that also, again, is a it's a loss of what historically has been a fundamental check on the power of banks, the power of government to potentially abuse that power. In selling this, and it seems to be it's in many localities. I mean, the British are talking about it. The Federal Reserve talking about it. Our uh, central bank has been talking about it. Legislation has been passed to enable the steps to be taken. They're not all there yet, but you can see the progression. It's happening. I think Nigeria is now full um, um, uh, digital currency. And and there's, a, there's an interesting, interesting story about how they sort of uh, funneled people into that. What's the happy talk? What's the upside that's being promoted to, well, what, to digital? What, what, yeah, yes. What the authorities are saying is that as you know, we've gone through a series of financial crises uh, in, in recent years. Uh, uh, you know, they have varied depending on where you've been in the world, but there has been a there, there's been a global element to them. Uh, obviously, 2008, 2009 being the most prominent. There have been some smaller ones. And what the authorities are saying, they're saying that, oh, gee, there's this fundamental flaw in the system. It seems that occasionally one or more banks get a little bit carried away. They take too much risk. They get into trouble and they risk bringing the whole system down as a result. You know, because those of us in power have an obligation to come up with mechanisms that allow us to deal with that. Uh, we, we, we'd like to see it coming, but see, it seems like we never do see it coming. 
But because it does happen now and again, if you give us this power, we'll be able to nip it in the bud. Uh, we'll be able to ring fence things and isolate things and prevent what becomes a bank run effectively, not just on a single bank, but on the whole system. Why? Well, because you can't get your money out. But they'll say the positive side of that is that the counterparty ultimately becomes the central bank or the government itself. That is, there will no longer be these other private intermediaries who can fail. There'll be a direct link between the highest authority, the ultimate monetary power, and you, the household. And so they, they reassure us that somehow that's a good thing. Well, again, if it's not abused, if it's managed well, it, it certainly could be a good thing. It's just that many of us are skeptical that that's what will happen. The level of control, because it is anything digital is programmable. That is a given. How, how much control could be applied? It, it sounds like it could go all the way to even determining yeah. what you can buy, when, etc. Yes, and this is this is where it gets properly uh, Orwellian, you know, Kafka esque. You know, choose your adjective. The thing is, is that the information embedded in this digital transactional currency, in theory, will be visible in near real time to anyone, and indeed could be programmed in a way that almost in a Philip Dick style pre-crime way could be pre-programmed to prevent certain people engaging in certain types of transactions and commerce under whatever conditions are deemed uh, undesirable. And, and, and that's where it really gets uh, a, bit, a bit crazy. So imagine uh, that the government authority has decided that your body weight exceeds your BMI, and so you've got to restrict calories. Well, you'll only be allowed to spend a certain amount of your digital currency on food that month or that that year, whatever it is. Um, let's say the government has decided that uh, you're smoking too much. Well, you'll no longer be able to use your currency on you know cigarettes or other other things that one might smoke. Um, let's say they decide that oh, you've been engaging in politically undesirable activities, and so we're no longer. Uh, going to allow you to go out to pubs, restaurants, and cafes, because as we know, that's where seditious conspiracy always begins. Uh, so we can't allow these people to socialize. I mean, it, who knows where it goes? I mean, I'm just speculating here. But the idea that government would have those powers in that big brother way does frighten a lot of people. We've seen it used. I mentioned the Canadian truckers as an example. I mean, obviously not a digital currency per se, controlled in the way we were just talking, but very easy to cut off the money account by account. So it has happened, and it happened in a country that you wouldn't automatically assume would, would pull a move like that, you know? I, I think that's if there's one thing that really has woken people up over the past few years to the possibility that that there that something is fundamentally wrong with, with, with the supposedly open, transparent, democratic governance model that so much of us, uh, you know, uh, and you know, believe in, or we think we believe in, it's precisely what you say. How can it be that a country that is 
seen or was seen as a leading light for progressive democracy can suddenly flip a switch, flip a switch and and go full on, you know, Orwell overnight. And, and I think that concerns a lot of people. First of all, a lot of people did not think the switch existed. And now that they know it does exist, they're asking themselves, who, who controls that switch? Do we or do we not? And, and that's, these are healthy questions, right? Uh, I believe it's actually very healthy that in a way we, uh, uh, we went through that very unfortunate experience for those involved, of course, the Canadian truckers. But, but if, there's one, if there's one event that occurred that helped to wake people up all over the world, you know, the shock heard around the world, as it were, <laughs> uh, that's it. Yeah, the, uh, the whole thing about free markets. Yeah, okay, banks fail from time to time. And I think there's um, what historic precedent. Didn't F- FDR put the brakes on back in the Depression? Remind us what happened there. And is there any connection with kind of any scenario that we're looking at now? Yeah, there is a bit of a historical echo there. The fact is, is that in the depths of the Great Depression, uh, ordinary American households were getting increasingly concerned their local bank might fail. And back then, the U.S. banking system was still a gold-backed banking system, and so people would keep their gold uh, in custody at the banks, and the banks would be able to lend against those gold deposits. And so these concerned households started to think, well, if the bank fails, we might lose our assets, so we're going to withdraw uh, our, our gold and paper currency, gold back paper currency from the banks. And so this was happening and it was, it, it was, it was a nationwide bank run uh, happening around the margins and, and beginning to gather momentum. And so trying to stabilize the system, trying to stabilize the situation, FDR just decided by executive order to put a stop to it and to make it illegal to withdraw gold from the banks. And indeed any gold that had already been withdrawn and was being held by households physically at home was to be confiscated that you had to pledge it back to the banks of course it was still yours um but you were no longer allowed to keep it at home and and so that that was seen by a lot of people as an abuse of executive power now again fdr and his uh, associates they would have argued it was necessary to stop the bank run uh but you know it was arguably and i believe it was uh, unconstitutional. So here you go, right? Um, that was a, a situation where the authorities argued, hey, you know, this is in your best interest because this stops the bank run. Had the digital currency technology been in place back then, well, FDR wouldn't have needed to jump through all those hoops. He could have just flipped a switch and stopped it. And again, from those who believe that that was a good thing to do, well, great. Um, for those who believe, hold on, wait a minute, you know, why shouldn't households have the right to bring their assets home and to keep them at home if they feel that's in their best interest? It's a fundamental argument, again, as old as civilization itself, uh, to what extent societies, uh, individuals in societies should have the power to opt out from time to time and do things their own way and choose to just, you know, get off the grid, as it were, or to what extent they can be forced to participate in that system, forced to stay on the grid against their will. Um, again, you can argue both sides of that. Yeah. So the you know free to do business is free to fail as well, and banks aren't excluded from that. And I guess a nationwide run on banks is a, is a bigger problem than localized runs on banks. 
what does a digital currency do for local lending, local business, local economies? Well, banking is, in theory and on paper, an economy of scale business. Other factors equal a bigger bank will simply run more efficiently. But then you ask yourself, well, hold on, why is it the case that in so many countries around the world, the local bank has actually done quite well for itself through the ages if it's an economy, if it's a natural economy of scale? And that's because what, what appears on paper actually doesn't necessarily work in practice. The fact is, the local banker might have better local knowledge. He or she might have a better sense of what local businesses are well run, what local businesses uh, have a lot of loyalty amongst the local clientele. Um, you know who who might have uh, you know sailed a bit too close to the wind a few years back and nearly went bankrupt, but but you know I bailed them out with a with an emergency loan. The local banker has that local knowledge, and so they can use their judgment to uh, apply that judgment locally in a way that enables the bank to serve that community uh, without the bank taking undue risk and potentially being taken down by that local community, becoming overextended, over leveraged, whatever it is. You lose that when you scale up. You lose that when you, you know, these two big to fail banks that are nationwide banks, they don't any longer have that local knowledge. What they do have, of course, they have a direct line to the central bank knowing what the next big policy decision is going to be. So the big macro decisions, they, they might have an edge on over that local bank. Now, some might call that corruption. Others might just say that's the way the world works. Um, but that's kind of where we've ended up today. That local knowledge doesn't matter so much anymore because so many big economic decisions are made centrally. The bottom-up economic activity that used to dominate the ups and downs, town to town, city by city, region by region, they don't matter so much anymore. It's all the big national or international macro decisions that are being made by those at the highest level of power. That's what's driving the business cycle for everyone. And so that's that's a fundamental change that's occurred over the last sort of century or so. Um, and and it, it has uh, shifted the power away from the local knowledge of the local bank to the macro knowledge of the big bank. And that does it force people to think about where they place their money if it's in a local bank and it's not necessarily, um, a, a, you know, a can't fail bank, they're more vulnerable. And it, 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 it creates a, a demand or a push to ignore the local banking, given that risk, and be funneled into the bigger entities who have that direct line that you're just talking about. Well, you see this happening right now in the U.S. You see multiple multiple smaller institutions that have failed th uh, this year in large part because people became concerned that they were too exposed to the local economy uh, and that they wouldn't be bailed out. Uh, and so you see deposit flight from smaller to larger institutions. And bizarrely, the way the U.S. authorities are responding to this, they're almost waving the flag saying, you know, look, you know, look at this. This is the way it works now. Uh, if you have any sense, uh, you should get out of small banks now and get into the big banks. It, it's almost like it's an advertising campaign for that, which is, again, bizarre on the one hand, but maybe just a sign of the times on the other. And that perception drives people to consider in a positive way digital currency, I would imagine. It yes, sort of serves that exactly. purpose as well. 
Exactly, because it's seen as safer. It's a direct line to the central monetary authority. It knocks out all the intermediaries in principle. The household has a direct deposit line with the central bank, as it were. And yes, that's the way to sell it. You sell it by saying, hey, it's safer, and it allows us to stop and control instability, bank runs, you know, whatever, whatever is going on in the financial system that is deemed uh, undesirable. And also in terms of infrastructure, we have to rely on digital networks continuing to operate reliably all the time. Now, they, they do. I'd take that on board. But it, it's not like having the folding stuff under the pillow, is it? No, it's not. And, and look, I mean, this is this goes in a slightly different direction. That is, um, look, we're all dependent on technology. We're, we're living in the digital age. Um, but you're quite right to ask the question, is that 100% bulletproof? Well, of course it's not. We, we sort of know that. You know, we go about our day-to-day life without thinking about it. In fact, it's quite distracting to try to go about your day-to-day life thinking about that too much. But why shouldn't people have a backup? You know, Just because you're attached to the grid, does that not mean you shouldn't have a backup you know, fuel oil tank for heating in winter if you live in a cold climate? Or, or just because you 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 run an internet-based business. Does that not mean you might not want to keep a paper copy of your ledger and accounts uh, just in case um, you know something gets lost uh, in the cloud? And why shouldn't people at least have the option, however however cumbersome it might be, to back things up physically or keep certain things in physical reserve? To even deny them the option to many people, and yes, this includes me is going too far when it comes to the money itself. There should be a way to get your money out of the system, off the grid, under the mattress, whatever you want to call it. There should at least be the option in extremis to do so. And to deny that option in some people's minds is almost denying a fundamental human right to just say no. Yeah, I wonder how many of the ATMs are working in Ukraine right now. Well, obviously, that's a very different kettle of fish. Yeah, and, but the, and this a, is and what, a, and this a very, a very happen, tragic right? one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so but this is what yes. can happen, is my point. Well, yes. And indeed, there are many examples throughout history, some of which are absolutely horrific. But uh, you may be aware, for example, that apparently the going rate for a Jewish family to get across the border to um, Switzerland or or France or or Belgium or the or you know somewhere when things were going deeply south in Germany uh, in the 1930s apparently the going rate was roughly three ounces of gold that is that was the that was the bribe the average bribe that was required for them to say oh yes your papers are in order you're allowed right. to you're you're allowed into our country um, that was a physical asset. And that saved a lot of physical lives, arguably. So whatever, it's a tragic but maybe opposite example. In the big picture globally, um, the US dollar is the global reserve currency. Um, And there are rumblings from the BRICS nations, a a kind of detachment um, feeling coming through from them. Russia's taken heavy sanctions. And I guess those other nations are looking at that and thinking, hey, it could be us next. We need to move away from that. So where does that leave the US dollar, especially as a global reserve digital currency, if it got to it? 
Well, look, uh, I, I believe personally, and I'm not alone in this, that the U.S. is kind of shooting itself repeatedly in the foot by resorting to dollar-based sanctions every time it has a serious disagreement with someone. Now, obviously, this is on a bigger scale than previous disagreements we've seen, but it's not the first time that the U.S. has basically enforced sanctions by monitoring dollar transactions. The United States has the ability, because of the clearing network through SWIFT and the Federal Reserve itself, the U.S. has the ability, in theory, to monitor all dollar transactions that take place anywhere in the world. Now, it might be difficult to do that, but oh, through the years, they put in the infrastructure to be able to do it pretty well. And what that means is, if you're transacting in dollars, understand who might be watching. So now it's on a much bigger scale. It's on a scale that uh, is, is being applied to arguably the biggest dispute in Europe since the Second World War. And, of course, Russia, as you mentioned, has these allies in the BRICS who, okay, fine, they're neutral in the Ukraine war officially, but many suspect that, in fact, they're kind of on Russia's side in this one. I, I, I don't, again, that's not necessarily my opinion, but, yeah. but people are speculating about that. Hmm. And so they're all thinking, well, hold on. Um the United States has this power now over, well, wait, wait, hold on, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. We have many times the population of the United States. We're larger economically than the United States. Uh, we're net exporters uh, collectively, whereas the U.S. is a net importer. Why shouldn't we be allowed to engage in commerce around the world as we would prefer how does the U.S. have this power over us? It's a natural question for them to ask. And the Ukraine war has taken it from just a theoretical point to one with immediate practical significance. I believe monetary historians will look at this period in retrospect and see the Ukraine war and the sanctions the U.S. imposed as a result of the Ukraine war as the catalyst, as the tipping point away from what was for many years a somewhat strange, unipolar, unbacked, fiat currency-centric system around the U.S. dollar. The transition away from that is now clearly happening, in my opinion. And, and, and yes, the Ukraine war was the catalyst. And also there's a competitive issue, too. Uh, like you say, the net exporters, if the United States feels vulnerable uh, economically, um, as a competitor, they could use that power to, well, you know, put things more in their favor. And that would not be fair at all. Well, uh, I mean, look, all, all, all's, all's fair in love and war, I suppose. And all's fair when it comes to international competition or cooperation, be it in political or economic affairs. And this is where I find game theory so instructive. Uh, game theory is the idea that there is a natural tension and trade-off between cooperation and competition. If everybody competed with everyone all the time and never found a way to cooperate, civilization wouldn't exist. And at the same time, if everybody cooperated and there was no competition, well, then you'd, you'd have this centralized, globalized world where everyone was atomized. It, it'd be like a beehive or, or an ant farm or something, right, where there was no uh, 
freedom of action left for any of the players. And that's how I see the international system. Countries compete, but they also cooperate. They do so opportunistically to advance their national interests. And when it comes when it comes to monetary affairs, that's where you see this happening now. The fact is, of course, if you export more than you import, well, you're competitive and you accumulate reserves. But then, then again, maybe households in that country feel they'd like to spend a bit more. And so you swing into a few years of importing more than you export as those households consume a bit more, back and forth, back and forth. We're in this bizarre situation now where the U.S. has been a chronic net importer for about 70 years. And that's that's highly unusual, right? That is not normal. Um, and so the U.S. is hoovering up resources from the rest of the world and consuming them and leaving the rest of the world with these IOUs. And I think the BRICS and others have realized that that is really not necessarily in their best interest. What is in their best interest is perhaps a monetary system, which does not allow the U.S. to print in exchange for its imports and instead creates a more level monetary playing field where the U.S. can't print it. The game theory that unleashes, however, means that in a way, no one gets to print for imports. No one gets to print their way to prosperity or to try to print their way to prosperity at everyone else's expense. That's an unstable equilibrium. And that's why I believe ultimately we're going back to some sort of gold standard because nobody can print gold. Nobody owns the gold printing press. There isn't one. So that uh, move away from gold, what was it, 1971 and Nixon? Was that was that a big clanking mistake? Is that what history Well, says? I mean, Nick, Nixon would have argued he had no choice in the matter. There, there was a run on the U.S.'s gold stock, and it, 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 he would say his hands were tied. Now, now I... I in the moment, it appears that way. But, you know, as Hemingway said, you know, how, how, how did I go bankrupt? First gradually, then suddenly. The, the, the fact is, there were many years preceding that final run on the U.S. gold stock when everyone around the world knew the U.S. was spending far more than it could sustainably. It was fighting the very, very expensive protracted Vietnam War, as well as other lower intensity Cold War conflicts elsewhere in the world, and at the same time, building the interstate highway system at the time that was the world's largest construction project in history, and also providing a vast expansion of the welfare state in the U.S., the so-called Great Society. I mean, you take all this together, it was hugely expensive. And so the U.S. was running a very, very irresponsible, unsustainable fiscal policy. It was incompatible with gold backing the dollar. You just couldn't do it. And so that was going to blow up at some point, and it just happened to blow up in August 1971, but it was going to happen. So was it a mistake? I believe if you look at the bigger picture, it was a mistake for the United States to abuse its dominant monetary position by debasing the gold backing of the dollar through, um, through excessive spending. I do believe that was a mistake. I believe economic historians will see that as a mistake. I believe there are countless examples throughout history of government spending too much, eventually uh, turning to debasement and eventually collapsing their economies and sadly, their, 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 their societies entirely. I mean, you know, Rome did it, right? We all know about the tragedy of the third century when the Roman emperors start debasing en masse 
Uh, that's the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. Uh, that's just one example, a very prominent one. There, there are others. Uh, France, France did it a couple of times. So, yeah. So uh, I'm just wondering, and it's only speculation, it was never going to be any other way, but if that had remained, would we be talking about the sort of central um, bank digital currency we're talking about now? Would it be a different kind of digital currency if it was backed by that physical gold, let's say? Alternative history is very difficult, of course. It's, it's speculative. And yet you ask a fascinating question. One can imagine an alternative history where the United States would have wound down the war in Vietnam much earlier, uh, would have been more prudent about its uh, domestic spending at the same time, would have uh, retained the gold backing for the dollar, which would have restrained money supply growth, which would have prevented uh, the, the U.S.'s ability to run chronic fiscal deficits and run up a huge national debt. As the leading economy of the world at the time, that would effectively have the, 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 the implied as well as almost explicit pressure that would have put on the rest of the world would have kept the rest of the world on sounder monetary and fiscal footing. The, uh, the chronic growth of the public sector versus the private sector over the past two generations would not have happened. Therefore, we would have more dynamic, faster growing economies. Everybody would be wealthier. Um, the financial sector would not have grown vis-a-vis -vis the non-financial sector to the extent it has. So when banks failed, that would have been just another bank failure. Um, it would have been a very, very, we, we would be in a very different world today. One that was still primarily seen as a free market capitalist, individual choice. Um, you know, if you go bankrupt, you go bankrupt, but hey, you know, start over sort of world, uh, good and bad. Uh, you know, you can't sugarcoat it. And yet, it's an interesting alternative history to contemplate. Wow, that was interesting to listen to. Thank you for laying that one out. Okay, so to bring our chat to an end, is uh, people who are, are worried about this, and I think they have a right to be, particularly at this you know, phase of it all, as it's coming together, central bank, digital currency, is there anything, are there any protections that ultimately can be relied upon to make this okay? Because we all know what human nature is about. We all know what, you know, people who are obsessed with power and how they can behave. Um, you know, is, is there anything that can make it right? Look, I, I think you have to be stoical about something like this. We, we, we are, in my opinion, going through a difficult period uh, when, when it comes to uh, freedom, liberty, and, and, and these sorts of things. And, and yes, the introduction of a central bank digital currency would further constrain freedom and liberty, uh, in my opinion. And I'm, again, as our discussion points out, right, lots of people are concerned about that. And so what can you do? You just need to accept it for what it is. They're going to give this a go. Uh, I, I believe you can try to organize democratically and you can try to stop it through the ballot box. But there's a lot of momentum behind it. And I'm not sure you can stop it at this point. So, okay, if it's going to be introduced, what can you do to prepare? Well, I would say two things. First of all, understand that money in the bank is no longer money in the bank once you cross that line. And 
if you want to protect wealth, you're going to have to get your wealth out of the banking system. And the problem is even bonds, even shares in principle, the payments are still going to be coming through that banking system. So to the extent any of your financial affairs are still necessarily tied up in the banking system, you want to at least try to make them as uh, protected from inflation as possible, because one of the consequences of going to CBDC is it makes it easier to inflate the system. Whenever you have a banking crisis, you just print more money, and that's all done digitally, and it's much easier. So we'll, we'll live arguably in an even more inflationary world. So to the extent you have investments, try to invest in ways that are protected from inflation. And there are ways to do that. Uh, you can invest in, in, in uh, corporations that are income generative and pay large dividends, for example. That's a classic inflation hedge. But you can also just try to get your money out and you can try to save in precious metals. That, that's a classic inflation hedge. You can uh, uh, acquire some physical gold or silver. It can be held in third-party custody in a safe jurisdiction somewhere. And nobody can really touch that. And that's a, that's a classic, you know, time-tested way to protect oneself from a weak banking system or from inflation. And CBDCs completely gets rid of the weak banking system angle by, by, by practically eliminating the possibility that weak banks would even exist, but it substitutes it with the inflation angle. But precious metals solve for both. And again, if you need current income, if you still need to get on with your life, try to make sure that your income to the extent it's being generated through savings, is being generated in an inflation-protected way. And as I mentioned, income-generating, dividend-paying corporations is a classic way to do that. You're going to see barter as well, aren't you? That, that's, a, that's a way of, of sidestepping. You already see it in some parts of the world. Uh, the fact is, is that bar barter, barter never really goes away, but, but it's hugely inefficient. Right, and it's very—it's it, just—it's it, so inefficient; it's unbelievable. And um, I mean, classic barter takes place with you know cigarettes, or it takes place with you know other basic goods that lots of people want, and which are kind of easy to trade in discrete units for other goods. Um, look, it may come to that. Uh, I mean, again, you see it in, in certain parts of the world as a way to to avoid tax and a way to conduct commerce in deprived areas. I hate to think that you know all of us are going to have to resort to that, uh, but yes, sadly, that, that that might be part of the solution too. Okay, and how long before this is the new normal? Can you put a, a time span on it? Oh God, I don't know. I mean, the 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 fact is, the technology already exists. Uh, I mean, they say they're still studying it, but actually, I think they're farther along uh, than they uh, than they uh, generally admit. I believe they would. They would do the way many in power have done throughout history, and that is to, to allow the next crisis to sort of form itself, the way a storm gathers. And when that crisis is sufficiently large, they won't let it go to waste. And mm -hmm. they'll jump in and say, hey, as it happens, you know, we're here. With, we, we've got Here's the back. solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Here it is, waiting on the shelf. We've done our homework. We're all ready to go. And now we can flip the switch and off we go into this you know, brave new world uh, of no physical cash whatsoever. I think that's how it will come about. Is the crisis brewing now? The, the one that they won't let go to waste? Possibly. 
uh, certainly it's very helpful to have a war going on because you can always blame everything on, you know, on the on the opposing side. Uh, 1984, right? Orwell's 1984. There's there's always a war going on because mm. that always allows. Don't quite know who the enemy excuse. is because that changes from time to time. But yeah, that's always going on. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, well, that's been a fascinating chat. Thank you for coming on our Reality Check radio station and giving us your expertise on the um, central bank digital currency picture, which is we're slowly building up as as, as we go. And that was very informative. So. Uh, John Butler, who is the Editorial and Investment Director at South Bank Investment Research. Thanks for giving us some time. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.